Eric, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to get straight into it. How did you come to your faith in Christ? Yeah, so I would say for me, it wasn't a single epiphany or singular event. Um, I've been going to church for literally as long as I can remember. And, you know, active in church, started church choir when I was like five. Um, And so church was always a a pretty major part of my life, going every week, doing um, youth groups, uh, church music, that kind of a thing. I would say I I achieved more maturity in my faith when I was in sixth grade. My church offered a a class, kind of what like an an extra class on what it means to be a Christian. And that was like the first time I heard the, you know, that classic uh, bridge metaphor over a chasm, you know, how um, Jesus is the bridge and sin is the chasm and he, he brings us to God. He allows us to make that connection to God. Mm-hmm. And so it really um, just gave me a better understanding of, of what it means to be a Christian and follow Christ more than just, you know, the stories from the Bible you learn in, in elementary school and preschool and whatnot. Um, and so then, yeah, I kind of digested that, kept going to church, kept doing my thing. And then when I was in eighth grade, um, I officially devoted my life to Christ and was baptized at my church. Um, and then I've been yeah involved in church and church music and just church activities uh, ever since then. Um, yeah, I've usually go to I've usually gone to like Baptist or Evangelical free churches, um, and the church I go to now is just across the street from your studio. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know it's uh, it's cool. Blue so, Valley Baptist. Yeah. 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 So it's yeah like I said I don't know they have a an ex- explicit moment. I would say that. You know, over that time, obviously, my faith has matured, um, understanding more and more what it means to be a Christian, understanding the incredible importance of Christ, mm. both in terms of my life, in terms of how I view the world, uh, in terms of just where he is and all the little places in the Bible um, mm. has been really cool. So, so yeah, it's just uh, it's been a, a lifeward progression. You know, I've, I always try to be moving closer to Christ um, and make sure I'm not static in my faith. And definitely make sure I'm not moving away from Christ. Um, so to me, it's more of a continuum in some respects. But I'm always trying to move towards Christ. And so th- I guess the big date was probably when in that sixth grade when I took that class, and then later when I became baptized. Mm. So dive a little deeper into what you just said there. What does it mean to move closer to Christ? Um, good question. I would say a lot of it, at least to me, um, is about taking on more of Christ's identity. Um, you know, trying to live out those spiritual disciplines, you know, pray, read my Bible every day, um, engage in fellowship, um, um, have patience for other people, love other people like Christ loved other people, um, just, just take on more and more of the identity of Christ. Um, you know, I've got a, a three-year-old and five-year-old at home, and so these last several years, I've learned a lot about patience and, you know, how amazing it is when you, when you read about how Jesus just accepted the little children mm-hmm. around him and, and brought them close to him and... and you know, had fun with them. So, you know, adding, you know, dimensions like that as life goes through, seeing, you know, what it takes to be like Jesus was to little children, for example. Um, and yeah, taking on that identity more and more as much as I can. Mm. How does, uh, how much of scripture and, and diving into the meditation of it, how often are you doing that? Do you do that daily, weekly, or what does it look like? For you? Uh, every night, my wife and I read, read, read our Bible for at least maybe five or 10 minutes. Um, I've been going through the MacArthur Study Bible, and I, I used to read, you know, about a, a chapter um, a night, but he's got so much long commentary, especially <laughs> in the New Testament, that, you know, I get through maybe like, you know, 15, 20 verses and read the commentary, and I'm, I'm already like at a full page. Mm. Um, so it's been a little bit slower, but um, yeah, I've been reading through, you know, usually about once a night. If it's really late, we might skip it a night, but that's, that's pretty rare. And I've yeah recently just been going through the whole Bible from beginning to end um, with my new with my MacArthur Study Bible, and that's taken me um, a couple years. I'm probably on year two of, of that process right now. Yeah, I actually have it right here, and uh, it's oh, yeah. definitely a, a great resource. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's interesting interesting because I think there's different perspectives on uh, having commentaries with your Bible. Uh, one of the things I've heard. Uh, said is you just want to read it without it because then you don't have a different voice coming in. But then again, it's like why uh, diminish or not even pay attention to the years and years of of 
scholarly work a lot it's, of these commentaries are built off of. And so much of, I feel like the Bible was written for people of that time and language of that time. And so understanding some of the cultural nuances and backgrounds, especially in the Old Testament text or, you know, some, you know, it really helps when you read Leviticus to understand what's going on with these sacrifices and, and rituals. And then the New Testament, you know, the Greek, there's always so much commentary on the Greek in yes. that MacArthur Study Bible. So just understanding some of the nuances of that Greek language, because it's completely different mm-hmm. than, you know, than our English language. Mm. So what was it like uh, being raised in a Christian home? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, yeah, my parents were... Um, you know, made sure I was going to church all the time, make sure I was active. Um, my mom volunteered a lot with the various women's ministries at church. I remember, remember we did something when I was a kid where we cut out stamps from envelopes um, and, and it went back to the church for some purpose. I think it was a fundraiser, I don't know, or something. Um, and she would help out with some of the, you know, um, women's ministries. And my dad would play trumpet in the church brass choir. Um, so he was very much a trumpet player. Um, and then... So yeah, it was. I would say it was. It was you know, we, we were at church once or twice a week doing stuff, um, and so it was. It was. It was great. I, I really liked it. And my parents were making sure to pray with me every night before I went to bed. And, and that's something. Even with my kids, I've tried to carry on forward. My wife and I, we, we pray with them every night um, and, and sing to them and whatnot. So um, just yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. So what about um, the praying at night? Like, did that? How long did that last for? Until what age? Uh, probably till, I mean, till they stopped putting me to bed, they obviously didn't pray with me as much at night, but, um, um, definitely around those middle school years when I, I felt myself being called closer to Christ that I started just doing it on my own. Mm. Um, that's also when I started reading my Bible, um, pretty regularly on my own as well. Mm. Um, was, um, so, so it was, it was really started in those middle school years, I'd say, but I think my parents set that foundation, you know, when I was a little kid It yeah. just, it was just, it was habit. It was part of my, who I am, my character. So. Yeah, I'm so grateful my wife does that with our kids. Reads Bible, prays every single night. Yeah, yeah. And I have a feeling that's going to continue on so they leave the house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you can start those disciplines early, it's yeah. just natural for them to carry it forward. Mm. Thank you uh, so much for sharing that. Uh, the next question I have for you is uh, kind of get into your professional life. Why did you decide to become an actuary? I would say the short answer is the money. <laughs> um, it's so when I was in high school, I was you know trying to figure out an idea of what I wanted to major in in college. And um, a friend of mine had mentioned the actuarial career. So I'm an actuary. And before um, you go into that, can we define what that actually is? Yeah. Typically, an actuary is someone who sets rates and reserves for insurance companies. Um, that's the very traditional role. Nowadays, it's kind of branched off into other, other areas, other disciplines, maybe in finance or banking or even data analytics. But the primary things an actuaries do are, are set rates and reserves for insurance companies. Mm. Um, so the rate is the premium you'd pay on your home or auto insurance. They determine what that is. And the reserves are something you know people in the general public don't see as much, but it's basically estimating how much the insurance company needs to hold to pay out all their outstanding claims and liabilities mm. um, under their, their policy um, contracts. So those are the two primary functions. Okay, thank you for defining that. So then, again, what led you to wanting to do this? Yeah, so you know, as a high schooler, it was definitely more money-focused. Um, a buddy of mine, though, his dad was an actuary at one of the um, large health insurance companies. And so I got a chance to, to meet his dad and just interviewed him and talked to him and learned about the career. Um, you know, it's constantly rated as one of the top 10 careers to have even nowadays in terms of compensation, stress, workloads, that kind of thing. So that was attractive. Um, it was also a nice combination of applied math and reasoning, but also in, in the world of business and finance. And I knew in high school I liked math. I was taking, you know, AP calculus and statistics. And I enjoyed it. And, and so that seemed like a nice fit to, you know, keep going in that route and, and, and go in that route. And then Later, my junior year of college, I got an internship um, with one of the large national insurance companies. And so that was kind of the experience that solidified, okay, I'm going to go go this route. Mm. When in high school were you already thinking about what you wanted to do for your career? Uh, I probably started thinking about that more, more seriously in my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was 
just kind of the, okay, I know I'm going to college and I figured out, you know, I went to K-State, I'm a K-State grad. And so I was like, okay, what am I going to major in? Um, so it's like, okay, if, if I want to do a particular career, it helps if my major is at least pointing me in somewhat in that direction. And so that's, that was the, the genesis of that, you know, disc- trying to discover what, you know, the, the general path I wanted to go into um, was, was um, yeah, that's why I wanted to do it then. So that wasn't your passion. I mean, you weren't following some sort of passion. No, and it's, it's funny you talk about passion because when I was at K-State, you know, you got to take some statistics classes. And I think I fell more in love with statistics um, than I did with the math. I really like statistics. And um, said, no, said no one ever. I, exactly, right? <laughs> no, nobody loves it. Um, I, had, I had some very good professors in college mm. um, in, in the statistics department. And the material just was so cool. Um, and I think I fell more in love with that aspect of it. Now, the actuarial exams, um, are heavy in statistics. So we had to study a lot of that anyway. So that was, that was great. And the career itself still uses quite a bit of statistics. I'm not up there with, you know, data, data scientists, you know, building neural networks, but, um, we do learn quite a bit of advanced statistics as part of the, the career, um, career path into education. So, so I even had a couple oppor- I even had one opportunity where, Okay, I was deciding, do I go, you know, work at this large insurance company or take this um, statistics research opportunity? Um, and I chose the insurance company. The money kind of won out. But um, <laughs> I still get to do a lot of statistics um, in my job, so it's not, not horrible. Mm. So after you graduated, you went and worked for a company? Yeah. Yeah, I worked for um, Allstate Insurance <clears throat> Company in their home office in the Chicago area for about three years, um, pricing personal home and auto insurance. Um, Did you live in Chicago? Yeah, the north northern suburbs. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I lived there for a few years. And then I actually left and got my master's degree in statistics. Um, because at the time, so in order to become an actuary, you have to take a series of tests um, to get credential, to get your professional letters. And um, I thought a lot of the statistics materials on the tests were very basic. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't modern um, compared to what I'd learned as a college student. And so I actually went back and got my master's degree to better, you know, flesh out that ability and knowledge and skill set. Um, and I think it's paid off a lot. A lot of the newer exams, they've, they've revamped them. And now I look at the syllabus and it's like, oh, this is all stuff I learned in grad school. Um, so I went back and got my, actually ended up getting my master's degree in statistics. So I've still found that passion. And um, in, in my work now, that's still something to kind of market. Like some of the stuff I do is training other actuaries on the heavier statistics um, concepts. Mm. Mm. Uh, was your, what did your father do? Uh, my dad worked, um, in public finance for the state department of education, the Kansas state department of education. Um, I don't know all the details, but it was generally helping, you know, school superintendents with their budgets and, um, you know, calculating the impacts of the state formulas for financing the schools, um, that kind of thing. So that's a love of numbers and yeah, it seems like there's maybe some influence there for maybe, you. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. Statistics and finance is pretty, pretty different, but yeah. Yeah. A lot of, you get to the heavy finance and a lot of it is just applied statistics. Mm. Um, so they, they, they can overlap, um, you know, the portfolio theory or options theory, that kind of stuff. Hmm. So you in high school said, I want to make some money. So then you're maybe doing some research. What, what's related to something that I like doing, which is math or something of interest for me. And then you landed on the actuary because of your friend's father. Yeah. Who was an actuary. Yeah. So then you went and kind of shadowed him or talked to him a little bit. Yeah. I just interviewed him and talked to him. And then you interviewed him yeah, in high just, school. Yeah. How'd you yeah. set, did you set that up? Yeah. I just, I just asked my friend if I could come over to his house one day and talk to his dad about the career. Um, so I spent <laughs> an hour or two and I think if I remember correctly, another buddy of mine who was also interested at the time also came with me. Um, and I think he had better questions if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, I love that though. Cause I don't think a lot of kids are doing that yeah. nowadays where you're thinking ahead, you're thinking, who do I, who can I talk to? Cause if somebody, a younger person said, I want to talk to you. I want to ask you questions about what you do. Cause I'm thinking about doing it myself. I'm an open book. Yeah. But I think a lot of, of maybe younger people are a little, um, shy from, from doing that nowadays. Yeah. I don't think most people realize how passionate someone can be about what they do. Mm. Even if it seems kind of very niche or boring to them. Um, and I think if, if you just ask, 
you know, most people who are well into their careers will be glad to tell you about, you know, what they do and the good and the bad of it. Mm. Um, so after that conversation, that kind of catapulted you into, I want to maybe pursue this. Yeah. Yeah. So I decided to become a math major then. Um, and then my sophomore year I added statistics um, as another major. And at K-State, they, they, they still offer a class. Um, they offer two classes devoted towards pr- preparing you for some of the actuarial exams. And those are typically taught by an, an actuary who just comes in and teaches part-time. Mm. Um, so also when I took that class at K-State, I got some more exposure to it. You know, he gave us some real world problems to, to focus on and, and do and, and um, you know, just so we could see it. And he, he would tell us about the career as well. We'll always need insurance, which then means we will always need an actuary. So yes. This seems like a recession-proof career. Um, for the most part, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty recession-proof, I would say. Um, I specifically remember at Allstate, you know, during the financial crisis, um, I was there. And, you know, they were laying people off corporate-wide, but the actuaries were still getting our exam raises. Um, <laughs> Hold on a minute. We weren't getting the regular raises, but you get that, raises as you pass But you, you still had your job, and you're getting paid more money. Yeah. Yeah. This is during the 08, 09 yes, era. Finance, yeah. Wow. So it, it tells you there is some resiliency to the career. Yeah. Um, I say that though, but there are risks to the career as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the the advent of, you know, artificial intelligence and maybe self-driving cars, if I remember this, this, the stat correctly, 40% of insurance premiums are commercial and personal auto. So if you get self-driving cars that don't have car accidents you could see you know, massive disruption in the insurance industry. So, you know, so far it's been very recession resilient, yeah. but yeah. you know, anything could change in the future. Uh, that's interesting. So after you went, worked in Chicago, uh, what brought you back to Kansas city? Um, I wanted to get out of Chicago. It was very expensive. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of traffic. I'm from Topeka originally. You can get anywhere in Topeka in 10 or 15 minutes. Yep. It's a very affordable place to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew I wanted to get out of there. And, and so I went and got my master's degree um, in statistics. I wanted to get back to K-State, kind of develop this skill set more, and um, just see where it would take me after that. Um, once you pass, there are a total of nine actuarial exams. At least there were when I was taking them. They change them all the time. But um, once you pass you know, several of them, you start getting recruiter phone calls pretty regularly. And um, I actually um, got my first designation, my associateship, and then I left for my master's degree. So, you know, even as a grad student, I was getting, you know, recruiters emailing me and calling me. So I knew there'd be some type of job opportunity um, mm. after I completed that, 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 that program. Um, so it wasn't completely crazy to leave. Um, but, and so that's why, yeah, that was kind of my, my reasoning for leaving the Chicago area. So then you graduated with your master's and then you uh, started working for a smaller company? Yes. I started working for a small consulting firm here in Kansas city, um, pretty much owned by one guy. And I was his single analyst at the time. And that's how I moved here to Kansas city was a recruiter paired us up and, you know, I met him and we talked and he actually liked my, st- my statistics background. Cause he saw that as an avenue to kind of increase the, you know, business opportunities for his business. Um, and so he brought me on and that's how I got here to Kansas city. Why did you choose that route? with an individual, basically sole proprietor, right? As opposed to going in, you know, d- doing another job with a bigger company. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd experienced the big company world and it's, uh, you know, very big. And you're kind of a, you're a small fish in a large ocean. Um, and so in this small company consulting, you know, you're working with very small companies. And so I felt like one aspect that was attractive is you'd be a bigger fish in a small, in a small pond. Um, and this guy was in his fifties. And so he was somewhat close to being to, to retiring. And so there was also an opportunity one day to buy out his business. And I thought that was attractive too, to, um, one day be, you know, my own business owner or self-employed. So you've always, you're kind of already planning for that. Yeah. Once, once I met him and kind of saw that strategy, um, um, that became attractive to me. Um, but there's a lot of risk in that theoretically. I mean, I also, yeah, that, that's totally true, but I'm also the guy who, you know, left my job in the financial crisis to go back to grad school. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting is you're well advanced in, in statistics. So you can, I'm guessing you in your mind and quickly, you can just know, uh, calculate what the risk is of this move, right? <laughs> yeah, five data. <laughs> but then it seems like you're taking all the high risk uh, uh, opportunities because of the return. 
And yeah. I'm, I'm only bringing this up because I think it's a huge myth. I think it's a huge lie. Oh, I'm going to go work for this giant company. Now I have financial security. I have job security. No, they can ax you at any time they yes, want. Yes, they can. Anytime. I learned that at, at my Allstate days. For um, me and, and you. And that's true for any large corporation. Right. And I would say for you and I, we would rather have our destinies in our own hands. So if we're going to get axed, it's because of our own doing. Yep. Not because of some and, decision that was made up up top. And where I am in my consulting world, I've got 30 clients, roughly. Um, so if one of them decides they didn't like what I'm doing or like me or want, want something else, they can cut me. And yeah, it hurts my revenue, but I'm not you know, searching for a new job, scared how I'm going to make the mortgage payments, right. you know, that kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of like that there's more spread of risk um, to use an insurance concept <laughs> with with having multiple clients and bosses, right. if you will. It's a little more stressful in some, some elements, but to your point, um, you know, it's not a big deal if someone does drop me. Mm. Yeah, even with a smaller business, mm-hmm. again, I you know, we deal with a lot of young people. I, I talk to parents and I, I really think there's this, this assumption again from the parents is that my, I want my child to go and work for a bigger company because it's more secure. But like you said, they become little tadpoles in this gigantic ocean that when it's time to start cutting costs, guess who, guess who leaves first is the, the tiny little tadpoles. But mm-hmm. when you're with a smaller business, you become a big fish in a tiny little pond and what you do matters. Yep. The value is felt, it's seen. Yep. And I, I know that just as a small business owner as well. We lose one of our people, we can feel it. Yeah. So we ultimately, I mean, I think all companies should do this, but we take extra, we try to take extra care of those people because they mean a lot, not only to the top line, but to the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's get into this question. This is very interesting for me. How can math and statistics predict the future. We don't know. Like as we're sitting here in the present moment, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen. Only God knows. Yeah. So, you know, the joke, the actuarial joke is the actuary, you know, if an insurance company was a car, the marketing people are pressing the gas pedal, the underwriting people are hitting the brake pedal and the actuary is looking out the back window, telling everyone where to go. (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, you're absolutely right. We can't predict the future. I always tell my clients when I give them reserve estimates, these estimates are going to be wrong. Um, it's just more of, you know, what's reasonable. You know, given the historical data, on average, this is about what it's going to be. But we can also project the range. And I think one, pe- one thing I think people miss about statistics is they think it's about, you know, estimating a mean or getting an expected value. But I think the real value of statistics and statistical um, analysis is, it can give you the range of possible values and you know approximate likelihoods of those different outcomes. And that range, that variability, to me actually provides or can provide far more value than just the average is X. Because mm. um, then you can kind of scenario plan, well, if this you know, 90th or 95th percentile event occurs, what does that mean for our business? What does that mean for our surplus? That kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I've noticed... It's taken me 18 years now, uh, at least realize the truth that it always goes back to kind of that range. Yeah. You can try to do everything you want to move it, <laughs> but it just quickly goes back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 I think it's um, actually pretty astounding how much the numbers will always go back to what is true. I mean, I think that's God's design. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's totally cool. Like as a statistician um, in that world of statistics, like you see certain distributions pop up in natural settings, um, like your your bell shaped normal distribution. It's very common, for example, for height, um, and it's 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 a really really good fit. And all this is is just some mathematical model. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of cool to see structure in things you wouldn't expect to see structure. And, that, and that's another one of those elements that just kind of further confirms my faith that there is, there is a God um, planning things out because um, there is this kind of structure in the world we live in. Mm. Can you think of an, an example of, uh, where you were surprised to see that structure in the numbers? Um, even things like, you know, simple things like... Um, you know, just people checking out of line at a grocery store. Mm. Um, that can be modeled with a certain um, distribution called a Poisson distribution. 
and it's a very common distribution for modeling counts. And you see that distribution being used again and again and again and again in so many different um, ways in the world. Um, so just seeing that repetition of that, that singular model um, in all these unexpected ways, I think, um, is just one example that mm. really is just cool to me. It's crazy, too, if you really sit and notice how predictable human behavior is. Yeah. And even oh, yeah. traffic... Or in the aggregate, yeah. Yes. If, yes. You, if you step back, you got to look at it from a bird's eye view, right? Yeah. You can't look at it from within. No. Because then you just become one of the numbers. But if you can see it as, as a whole, I think it's just incredible how predictable it is. Yeah. Yeah. And even with just history, too, if you look at history, a lot of times people will be surprised at what's going on today. Why are we surprised? Yeah. This has happened many times. Oh, yeah. This has happened many times. Just go back to even the Roman times. It was yeah. actually worse, I would say. Yes. <laughs> some, they were doing some crazy stuff back then. Yes. And we, we think that we're in some unique time. No. 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 I, history repeats itself. And that maybe even goes into the numbers as well. So I have to ask this question. So you seem like a, a planner. You're always thinking, you know, planning. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I think those who fail to plan or planning to fail, right? Mm -hmm. And um, with your planning, did you ever experience any self-doubt? Because you, in high school, you're like, I want to do this. And I'm going to do it. You know, math, mathematics, statistics, goodness, I barely even lasted in the, the one business statistics class I had to take <laughs> when I was in business school. And But you said, I'm going to do it. Oh, I'm going to also um, get my master's. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. A lot of people, they struggle with that. They want to do it, but they either have self-doubt or they just lack the follow-through. What's your experience have been with that? Um, I would say one moment where I, I did have some self-doubt was, so I mentioned the actuarial exams. Um, these are tests um, that, at least when I was taking them, again, they changed stuff. Um, they were offering them uh, the lower exams, so like exams one through four, were offered twice a year. And these tests were about a four-hour test. And in order to, and it basically comes out to um, basically a semester's worth of material in one test. And um, typically you're studying about 100 hours for each hour of the test. So I'd be putting in 400 hours or so of studying for each test um, over five, five and a half months. That's about an average of three hours a day. So I'm studying a lot to pass these tests. Um, I had a pretty high pass rate in my Allstate days. Um, and so I'd gotten through exams one through seven in about three years. Um, there and then eight and nine when I was in grad school I started to stumble and it took me two times to pass exam eight and then exam nine and it, by those higher level tests they're offered only once a year um, it took me about five it took me five times to pass that last exam um, so five years studying for one test um, pretty much and so definitely by time four and the time I was going into the fifth time my confidence was shaken um, to say the least. And, um, and some of it was the, the nature of the material was an area I, I didn't work in as much. All state is, you know, your personal home and auto. And this was like more heavy in workers comp and commercial insurance, which I didn't have a lot of practical experience in. Um, and so I definitely would say that was a, a time of my life where I was kind of like, Oh geez, what am I doing? Um, you know, can I pass this? Will I pass this? And even when I did pass it that last time, I don't think I slept that night. I was awake the entire night and just so wired because I was worried about this test. Um, and I ended up passing it that last time, um, you know, with, with no sleep. I was pretty tired the rest of the day, but um, I got through it and, and I finally passed it. So I'd say that's, that is one time when, you know, my, my confidence was shaken, um, mm. you know, but, you know, like you say, you just got to keep, keep going through it. Keep, you know, you know, look at the failures. Where was I weak on the prior test that I failed? What parts of the syllabus um, did I maybe not know as well? They would release the exams afterwards, so you could see the questions. You could you you could see what you didn't know as well. Um, so I think a lot of it comes back to that going back, reviewing, seeing where I was weak, trying to fix it and improve it, that kind of a thing. Mm, and just repeat the process. Repeat the process. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's very admirable to to uh, get to know your story, and I've known you for a while now, and I just know that you're very consistent on. You're going to do this and then you do it. <laughs> yeah. So, so for you watching, 
Um, I've been a student here at Coma since 2011. Yeah. Um, and my test progression has been probably a little slower than I'm mm -hmm. sure you'd like. Um, but some of it is just the, you know, I've also been in the process of actuarial exams while doing it and then career. And now I've got young kids. Two kids, so, yep. Um, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm still here, though. I still stick with it. Exactly. And that's that's why I have the utmost respect for you. Let's get straight into the question I know a lot of people are wanting the answer for. And that is, what are some of the factors that raise res residential property insurance? So in the world of the, the personal insurance, so what you, the normal person buys for their home and auto insurance, um, one of the most predictive variables of predicting expected losses is your insurance score. And the insurance score is basically um, your credit score. And they do other things to it. They take various elements from the credit reports and that credit score information, and they create what they call an insurance score. But it's pretty much correlated with your, your credit score. And it's extremely predictive of losses. Um, when I was at Allstate, they had some, some pretty big modeling, na nationwide modeling, where they show um, how losses vary. Typically, um, for auto insurance, someone with the worst credit score probably has two and a half to three times the expected losses of someone with the best credit score. Um, and for property, you know, property is more, um, you know, driven by weather, but it's still one and a half to two times that, that relationship. And this is something I've even seen in my career. I've done some modeling for, for small clients in the Midwest, and I even see it in, in that data, too. Um, so... That's one of the most predictive elements. So if you want to lower your insurance rates, um, just make sure you're working to increase your credit score. Um, do what you can to make sure you're paying your bills on time um, and, and whatever goes into that. Um, you, know, you know, Keep your utilization rates low, that kind of a thing. Um, and nobody in the industry knows why. We just know it's correlated with losses. Um, and so that, that's one of the first things you can do to lower your rates is improve that score. Well, credit score... Uh, hopefully this is not coming across as offensive, but can be maybe related to responsibility. And that's that's one of the kind of general arguments that the industry makes is maybe people who are more responsible with their money are more responsible with their driving. Um, maybe they're maybe less stressed out by the things in life so they can focus more on their driving or maybe they have better financial resources to fix their house and get it, make sure so it's it well-maintained. It affects the house insurance yeah. premium as well yes house and car yes and obviously with car you got accidents and all that stuff but if we take yeah. all that away you're saying just somebody who we don't even know anything about we should look at their credit score and then that is used as a major factor yeah it's one of the most predictive variables now in this new world of telematics where they're using your phone um from what i've seen in the industry that's also highly predictive um and maybe about as much as, as credit score, maybe a little bit less. Wait, what does that mean, telematics using your phone? Um, you can get, some of the carriers will allow you to download an app and they'll monitor your driving. Uh, um, and usually like hard braking um, uh, is an element, how much you drive, time of day. Um, those are things they're tracking that um, they're using to build a database essentially to model your expected losses. Mm. Um, right now though, at least I know with my carrier, I haven't seen any big discounts for that or anything of that nature. You're doing it? Yeah, I've, I mean, it's got, you know, I've got farmer's insurance and I download their app and they monitor my driving. Um, give me a slight credit, but. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because if you really dive into it, um, first off, here's a question. I just thought of this. So uh, why do different insurance companies charge such drastically different premiums? <laughs> Good question, sir. Um so you can think of insurance rates like a piece of paper floating through space. Okay. And the, the average amount an insurance carrier might collect um, can fluctuate just the height. So one carrier might be a height of this, another carrier might be height of this. Um, another aspect of it is this piece of paper is usually bent in some crazy shapes. So for example, insurance score might be a variable that they look at, and this is someone with a poor insurance score, and this is someone with a good insurance score. So the rates will vary like that. So different carriers, their piece of paper might be shaped slightly differently, and they might be different average heights. And that's why their rates can vary so, so much mm. um, as those, those different elements. Um, you know, age is another thing. Typically, younger drivers are really expensive. Middle-aged drivers are cheaper. And then older drivers, and you get in your 70s or 80s, are more expensive again. So again, that's another shape dimension mm. um, or, 
And so, and that's why. And so if you want the lowest rate, another thing you can do is just shop around yeah. because you don't know what, what piece of paper um, your carrier is using. And sometimes, you know, your carrier might have just hit you with a rate increase and another carrier you look at is cheaper, but their rate increase might be coming two months later. Um, so mm-hmm. even shopping around, you know, might only give you short-term benefits. Um, another thing you can do, and I know the property insurance rates have increased a lot recently. I've seen that a lot of my clients um, is just look at your deductibles. Um, deductibles can can do a lot to reduce the expected losses for the insurance companies. A lot of property insurance is being driven by catastrophes, so large correlated events. And so when you raise your deductible, um, that reduces their ca- catastrophe risk quite a bit, and you can get nice discounts that way too. Um, with, yeah, go ahead. With, with inflation, you know, we've been having these last couple of years, raising your deductibles, you should be raising them anyway, and that can be a great way to lower your, your premiums as well. Yeah, the way I see it is you're either going to uh, save that money and put it into some reserve account, or you're going to yep. uh, pay it to the insurance for them to do the exact same thing. Yep. But <laughs> I might exactly as well, right. you know, have it just in case nothing happens. And now I have that to you use. You can earn for interest whatever. on it nowadays too, right? Right. Pretty good interest, actually. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> what about for our business owners or even people in HR, workman's comp? I mean, that that insurance, I, you know, to be honest, I hate paying that. <laughs> um, it's hard for me to even understand what I'm paying for. Yeah. That, that one's tougher. Um, a lot of that is. So a lot of um, workers' compensation insurance, the rates are developed by an industry trade group called the National Compensation National Council of Compensation Insurers. And so they provide expected loss costs by different job classes. Um, oh so goodness. job classes are like office workers, certain types of construction workers, a carpenter, a doctor. It just completely varies. All these, they have different class codes. And so it's a little bit harder to change things because um, they're setting those losses and it's just really just a function of, 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 you know, whatever distribution of employee types you have. Mm. Um, and so there's nothing, they don't rate off a credit score or anything like that that you can really change. And with workers' comp, obviously there's no deductibles either. Um, so they do some experience modifications. So they take your historical loss experience and then will adjust your rate for that. Mm-hmm. So just making sure you keep your employees safe, develop good safety training, um, safe work habits, that kind of a thing, keep your losses down. Um, and then just making sure that you're taking proactive steps because they'll also do what's called schedule rating, um, where an underwriter will look at your, your business and your company and seeing what, what things you're doing, um, going forward to prevent future losses as well. Um, if it's something you've done in the past, they just consider that as part of the experience rating, looking at your historical loss experience. But if you're changing things going forward, you also want to communicate that to the insurance company, um, cause they might give you a five or 10% credit, um, for, for, for future changes. Wait, how do you do that again? How do you get the credit? So I would say just, you know, talk to your insurance carrier. Um, any changes, um, like if you're implementing a new safety procedure at, for your company, you know, tell your insurance carrier because they might give you a couple percentage points credits on your, wow, on your schedule rating. Hmm. Um, now that might disappear over time, you know, as they build experience, um, but it can give you something. So the what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is... Every employee is going to be some, in some sort of classification code, and that classification code, um, all the data is basically rounded up across maybe the country, the world, and now you're playing into all the successes and most likely the errors and mistakes that a lot of, for example, accountants are making. So then now that rating is adjusted by, based on the whole. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, if you're running your Taekwondo studio much safer than the typical Taekwondo um, you know, owner, um, it's hard to reflect that, right? It doesn't because, matter. No, because they're they're looking at the national, U.S. national data, right. aggregating it up for Taekwondo studios. You know, they might have a separate class code for, you know, people running that um, or working in a Taekwondo studio, and you're just getting that average. And it's hard, it is hard to differentiate that. Wow. So if you're the safer, per, the safer, if you're taking the safer approach in your kind of job or your industry, you're still going to be paying the premium for the average of the entire conglomerate. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. Now, different carriers, insurance carriers might specialize in certain industries. Um, I have a client that specializes in um, construction workers' compensation for construction companies. Oh, yeah. And so they specialize in claims handling for that and um, loss mitigation and preventing losses 
And they also offer, um, will offer really high deductibles um, that their clients can utilize. Um, but their clients are, you know, obviously having to pay, you know, the first couple hundred thousand of a claim, that kind of a thing. Mm. Let's get into what everybody is talking about today, which is AI. What role does AI play in your space? Um, so a lot of my work right now is on the reserving, the financial side. I haven't seen much of it um, so far. A lot of what I do is, is um, you know, providing an estimate that has to be reviewed by company management and auditors and state examiners. And those audiences are usually not the most sophisticated audiences. Um, and so it's important to develop models and estimates that you can easily explain to people um, with different backgrounds. Um, so I don't think, I haven't seen it on that reserving side um, as much. On the pricing side, um, there has been a lot of industry talk about it. You know, when I was at my Allstate days, they were definitely using some heavier statistical models. I don't know if AI is still going to penetrate that too much, um, simply because, again, a lot of your model results need to be explainable to um, uh, insurance regulators. Uh, insurance is a highly regulated industry, and it's regulated by individual states. Uh, and mm. so some states are very sophisticated, and some states are not. And so you generally have to you know, build models that, Again, people at all levels can understand, you know, using some type of machine learning with a neural network, those neural network models are essentially nonlinear, which is a fancy way of saying we can't easily explain how the inputs lead to the outputs. You can show that the outputs, you know, match, you know, pretty, pretty well match the, the actual events. You know, what it's saying, this is going to happen, usually that matches, but you can't directly easily link, okay, these inputs lead to, these, lead to that output. You can't explain why with those kind of models. Um, and so I still don't think there's going to be too much because um, a lot of the modeling we, we do in the industry and we've done for the last 20 or 30 years um, are very, you know, you say, okay, you wait this characteristic with this characteristic and that gets you this expected result and that pretty closely matches to the actual results mm. on average. So you're saying if we get more, if we come up with more advanced statistical modeling or even more powerful, faster or you can have more, uh, add in more inputs, add in more data, whatever. That's not going to uh, increase maybe the predictability, accuracy of uh, statisticians or actuaries. Um, I mean, it might, but it can be very difficult to to show the regulators that it is, and that you're not um, unfairly discriminatory against certain risk groups, um, that kind of a thing. Um, that's a big thing is, is um, rates need to be um, you know, not inadequate, excessive, or unfairly discriminatory. So you've got to be able to have your model um, show that it's not unfairly discriminatory to certain groups. And that black box element of, I think, a lot of the modern neural networks and machine learning kind of makes that hard to justify to, to regulators. Um, some companies will still probably do it in the background just so they know what their expected losses are. Um, underline it and maybe they'll tweak things like their underwriting or marketing in terms of the rates um, where typically us actuaries work in. I don't think you'll see it quite as much. Mm. Um, what do you mean discriminating towards a certain class or? Um, they just want to make sure that, you know, you know, when you're rating on someone, so for example, their, their credit score, you want to make sure you have to generally have to show that the um, expected losses, the losses correlate with those ratings. So people you charge more should have higher expected yeah. losses. Okay. Um, so you don't want to charge people less when they have um, higher expected losses or charge people more when they have lower expected uh, okay. losses. Just okay. making sure that people are not unfairly discriminated against mm. in that respect. Mm. So uh, I just read something about they're coming out with, they like they already came up with, I, can't, I think it's called quantum computing. Yeah. I just watched some documentary on this. This is incredible. I mean- what would take, you know, let's just say years or a million years to do, now they can do it in like an hour or something. And I'm probably yeah. screwing up the actual um, time frame on that, but what are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, the insurance industry is notoriously slow to adopt new technologies, so it's going to be a <laughs> long time. And I think, you know, the, the applications for that, from what I've read, are more very specific types of problems um, that I don't know that we typically see in insurance. Um so I don't know how much that's going to permeate, at least in my career. Um, yeah. I guess it could. Yeah. Um, so you seem 
like a very logical and practical person. Uh, I think there's an assumption sometimes in our culture that if you are a practical, logical person with a high IQ, you don't need faith. I mean, you can just think about it on your own and come to your, your truth on your own because you have your intellect to lean on. How, why do you have your faith in Christ? Yeah, um, you know, I think as I've gotten older, I've seen um, just how Christ impacts my life and my decisions. You know, I can be really smart, but it doesn't mean I'm necessarily moral. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm, I care about other people, right? Um, and I, seeing how Christ transforms my heart to care for other people um, further, I think, convinces me of my faith um, and reaffirms that faith. I think another thing is, though, like you look at the Bible, um, Jesus' disciples, you have testimony from 11 people who interact with him day in, day out. Um, my understanding is history says many of those, almost all those guys, except for maybe John, died for Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's any other religions where the people who founded it all died proclaiming their faith. And it's really cool, too, when you think about the backgrounds of those guys. Um, you know, Simon the Zealot, from what I've read, was an anti-Roman terrorist who was suspected of murdering a Roman official. And then you have Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was essentially a Roman collaborator. And those two guys were breaking bread together. Mm. Um, and seeing that, so seeing how their hearts are transformed by Jesus, I think is, is powerful testimony and evidence, empirical evidence of of the power of Christ. Mm. Um, and I think even seeing, you know, you know, you know, Jesus create, does miracles today, but it's not with, you know, stopping storms or curing cancer. It's changing people's hearts towards him and seeing people who didn't know Christ and now they do and how their hearts have transformed. To me, that's the empirical um, evidence that provides the logical basis for my faith in Christ. Mm. When did you start getting into learning more about that? What about what age? Um, I would say again, it's that continuous process. Yeah, just reading things here and there, um, reading, um, you know, just yeah, commentaries or, or other books. Mm, yeah, if you do, you ever um, read about James, so Jesus's brother? He didn't even believe in him. <laughs> of course, like his family, right? Think about that. <laughs> yeah, which is, is, you know, Jesus said that um, scholar is without. Uh, I'm I'm butchering it, but basically, if you're in your hometown. Yeah. Right. Nobody's going to believe in you. No, nobody believes you. And we, we all experience that, yeah. right? The uh, Some people might think that we are smart and all this, but then we go home and all that goes away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just... James, you know, he went from believing or not believing. Sorry, he went from not believing and then Christ uh, died and resurrected. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's what it was said. And uh, he ended up being thrown off the, I think he died from somebody throwing him off some high uh, area and he he died for his faith mm-hmm. and his brother mm-hmm. who he didn't believe in. Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Like Something literally the ultimate life. test is your life. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to give it up mm-hmm. for your conviction? And for those many people that have done that. And we can also even go into the Bible. Why even trust the Bible? And even uh, I was re- I was watching something where the Mormon faith they believe that the Bible was uh, basically tarnished. They, they cut, you know, it gets copied over and over and over again. Things are missing and all this. But then I realize, then I come to find out that we have twenty thousand manuscripts of the Bible. Yeah, twenty thousand. Yeah, we're not talking two thousand twenty. Yeah, and it's all the same thing, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Yeah, like what other book do we have like that? Especially that spans over what is almost two thousand years. Yeah. Uh, and all saying the same story. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I'm right there with you. And, and it, I, I lo- really love to come across people who are thinkers, who have a strong faith in Christ, because uh, I really believe that Christianity is not just about the feel. You don't just feel it. Agreed. We got to think it. Yeah. We got we to gotta meditate it. We got to understand it in full. It's not some topical thing. We just say a prayer, and all of a sudden we're a Christian, and then we go about our day. And I think that's so important to help you internalize that faith and live it out. You know, weekly, daily, hourly, minutely. Yes. Um, if you want to take Christ on as your identity, you have to have a full and complete head knowledge of 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 
Christ and Christianity and the theology and what it yes. means as well. And we get that knowledge from where? Scripture. Yeah, the Bible. Nowhere else. Yeah. You know, I, and, you know I, I think that we definitely get nudges today from the Holy Spirit, but, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times people will say, oh, God told me this and that, which is that's fine. But for me, it's like just as long as it aligns what Scripture says. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because you need to be running that through your Bible, right. running that through your, your your pastor or other people influential in your life to say, are you hearing this from God as well? Hmm. Yeah, because God has spoken, and that was the Bible, mm-hmm. and it ended in Revelations. But then we add, we start adding it, and you know, somebody says, oh, I, I heard this. Well, this is different than what the Bible says. Then what's truth? Yeah. Like, who's right? Yeah. Oh, he said, he said this. You know, she heard this. Now we have to add that to Scripture. See what I mean? Yeah. It's, I think it always goes back to uh, the Bible, really. And I think that's where a lot of times we will struggle as people um, or as believers is, is putting other things before Scripture. Yeah. Recently, I'm, I'm really taking a challenge on for myself that is switching around priorities. So before, it was, oh, i got to squeeze in my Bible, my Bible time. I got work, family, et cetera, et cetera. But somewhere I got to find a sliver of time to make sure I do my, my, my study. Now I'm trying to switch it around where it's, I need to squeeze in work and family around my Bible time. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> and guess what happens when you start doing that? All of a sudden you get more productive. You're a little more clear-minded. <laughs> you're more focused. And hopefully, you know, my wife can only be the one. My kids can tell you this. I'm more present at home, mm-hmm. but it starts within the word. So that's my my preaching session for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's go back to your journey as becoming an entrepreneur. So you went from actually uh, starting out with a big corporate corporation, and then you got your master's. Then you started working for an individual, small business. Then you didn't actually bring, we were talking about this off camera, but you said you went and worked for another bigger company for four years. Yeah. They were going to pay you more money. They yeah. were paying you more they money. They were paying me more. Yeah. But then you got a phone call or somehow you got reconnected with your previous employer and there was talk of him wanting to retire. Yeah. He was, um, after several years, um, he was really start ready to begin retiring and transferring clients to me. Um, and so I came back after working with this other large corporation um, for several years. I came back to this small business um, and then started the process of, of just, you know, reengaging with those clients and um, that process of transitioning and buying out his clients and buying his, his, his practice, his consulting practice. Was that first conversation about you coming in and buying the business? Is that why he reached out to you or he was just wanting to give you more kind of clients? I think the plan was always he was going to sell to me eventually. Um, you know, just um, when I left to go back to the large corporation, it was strictly because of money. And um, once he was able to start, you know, getting ready to retirement, he could shed more clients. And then that, that kind of solved that money issue yeah. uh, or made it more equivalent, I would say. Um, and so I think that was always his plan. That was always my plan. Even when I left that large corporation, I figured at some point I'll be coming back to take over his business. It's just you know, when, not mm. if. Um, and so when that, that occurred, um, yeah, I jumped at it. I was, I was, I was excited and it's been going pretty well so far. How long has it been going? How long has it been going now? Yeah. So since, uh, basically fall of 2018 is when I came back with him and he fully retired we had our last client visit this past October. Um, Congratulations. So wow. I'm still, still in the pro- process of, of paying him for clients. Um, we're just doing kind of a, you know, a revenue sharing, if you will, given percentage of revenue, but yeah. um, it's been going well. So you left a lucrative job because you wanted to take on the risk of being a crazy person who wants to own their own business. Yeah. 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 <laughs> How's it been so far? It's been good. I love it. Um, I get to work from home hundred percent of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I've got preschoolers. I have a three-year-old and five-year-old. And when I had left, um, we had literally just had our first son. Um, so I wasn't just leaving a good job. I was leaving a good job at a time when I had a newborn in my household too, <laughs> um, to take, you know, this risk. Um, but it's been great cause I get to see the kids at lunchtime. They'll come in and, you know, say hi once or twice during the day, you know, get, get some hugs, sure. that kind of a thing. Uh, so just, it's given me enormous flexibility. 
Um, I can take time off whenever I want. You know, we, we went down to Union Station yesterday in Crown Center before the crowds hit it as much because school was still in session. Yeah. Um, so I've really enjoyed that flexibility and that freedom um, of being self-employed. And um, I find myself more motivated in this world because it does all rely on me. You know, in that corporate world, you can work really hard, but it doesn't necessarily translate to more money. <laughs> um, and you can you know, work hard and still get laid off. Yeah. Um, if, if things in the business changes and I feel like there's more of that direct relationship between my effort, my work, you know, what I'm doing, how I think about solving a problem, how I communicate to the client. And there's more of that connection between what I'm doing and, and, you know, the value I'm providing and what I make in compensation and, and that aspect of it. And I think I found that I like, I like being an actuary, but I like the business of being an actuary even more. Like insurance is cool, but I really like that business of being an actuary and running the business mm. um, beyond just you know helping insurance companies do things. How do you make sure that money doesn't become an idol for you? Yeah, that's that's one of my um, definitely weaknesses or area I, I have to battle. Um, you know, I, I say it's important to remember. It's just for me. I have to always remember it's a means to an end, not an end unto itself. You know, so. You know, the money is so they can provide um, a comfortable life and education for my kids at this point. Um, you know, the money is so I can get to my own retirement goals um, or invest in, you know, the next generation or um, that kind of thing. So I think a, a big key is for just making sure I remember that, yeah, money is a, a means to an end, not an end unto itself. Um, tithing is another part of how we use our, our money, too. Um, so there's an element of, okay, I can help tithe, help my church out more if I'm making more money as well. Um, so trying to frame it that way and just not making it my God, um, of my life and, and just always remembering that it is a weakness of mine probably as, as I'm sure you gathered from this conversation. Um, <laughs> you're but, not alone. Yeah, but it's not the end all be all. And I think having kids has helped ground that a little bit more. Um, you know, again, for me, especially now that I have kids, money is definitely more of a, um, a means to an end instead of an end to itself. It's more about helping them, um, reach their goals as well. Mm-hmm. How do you bring your faith into your workplace? It's a good question. So it's a little tricky because I have all these different clients. And so I don't have deep relationships with a lot of these people I'm working with externally. Where I do have deeper relationships are the, um, the people I work with. Um, the guys that I bought the business from, um, he's a very devout Christian. Um, and that was also one area where we kind of bonded, um, especially early on. Um, you know, you know, being in a small business, working with someone closely, you have to have a trust element. And I think that helped build our trust quite a bit. Um, and so he's a very devout Christian, and, which has been great. Um, but there's actually other people I work with who are not. And so, um, you know, they know I'm a Christian and I talk about it. And, it, and hopefully I, I hope that they can see, you know, one way I do is I talk about my faith. I, I, they know I'm a Christian and just showing them how I interact with, with my family and my relationships. Um, I think they've noticed, um, differences in how I do that relative to what they've seen in their family. Um, so just living my life out as a Christian day in and day out, how do I treat this, this, uh, these other people who work for me? Um, am I treating them with respect? Am I valuing their work? Am I giving them the, the feedback they need? Um, I think they see that and, and see, at least hope, know that something is different and then trying to link that to my faith mm. is what mm. I try to do. Who are your, uh, What's your ideal client look like? Um, is it big corporation, small? Yeah, the big companies all have their own internal actuaries. Um, small mutual companies um, are kind of the ideal client. Usually they're, they're in either one state or maybe just a handful of states. Um, they don't have their own full-time internal actuary, but they usually have some actual work that needs to be done. Um, a lot of where I get my revenue is signing a statement of actual opinion on the reserves. So every insurance company with their, their annual statements, and they, they file what's called statutory accounting under statutory accounting rules. Um, they have to get, have an actuary give an opinion that their reserves are reasonable. Um, and so a lot of my work revolves around estimating the reserves and providing that opinion. Um, so small companies that aren't big enough to hire their full-time actuary, but they need someone to, to provide this opinion. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the ideal client. Usually they're small mutual um, companies. Mm. Well, we'll provide your contact info uh, in your uh, on your episode page on our website. So if you guys uh, are in need of his services, 
He obviously knows what he's talking about. If I uh, needed his services, I'd hire him in a heartbeat. My last final question for you is, why do you still do martial arts? Why do you still do Taekwondo? Yeah, um, it's just something I really enjoy. It's, it's a great way to, to exercise um, and with a community. Um, so when I first moved here to, to Kansas City, to Overland Park, I was you know working out the Lifetime Fitness. I worked out there for years, but I never like and talked to anybody or engaged with anybody. Um, but here's a place I can come and people know my name. I know their names. You build a relationship, you build rapport. Um, so I like the community aspect of the workout. I also appreciate that um, it works your body in very different ways. You can do a traditional workout and, you know, you know, lift or do squats and you're working certain muscle groups and Taekwondo totally forces you to work completely different things and it keeps your flexibility in, Especially because you're an avid runner. Yeah. 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 So it, it keeps my flexibility up. It keeps me working out in different ways. I really like the community. Um, and I'd say those are the kind of the, the elements that keep me coming back. You're not just working out, but you're learning things while you're doing it. Um, you know, you're learning, I don't know if learning how martial arts is a practical skill, but yeah. um, if you ever need a backup in a bar fight, sir, I'll be there for you. <laughs> that kind of thing. But. Sounds good. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'm never in that predicament. <laughs> Well, thank you, Eric, uh, for coming on. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. <laughs>